I was in my garage the other day, and I, and I came across uh, an old package of those fire starter logs. You know what I'm talking about? They're those, like, bricks that you can put in and get a fire going. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, some of you have no idea, and some of you already think I lost my man card that those even exist in my house. Um, but anyway, I was looking at the label on them, and it said, do not eat. Like, who had, I mean, that's there because someone decided they wanted a snack. And they ate the fire star log. We know that, right? And so we get these warnings because other people have gone before us, and frankly, they have done stupid things. That's, that's how warnings usually, I think, happen. Uh, I want you to know in all seriousness, I have gone before us in the text uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I have been greatly convicted. Um, and I think you will be too. I think you will be too. One of the things uh, that happens as a pastor and as an elder is you begin to have an awareness for the strengths and weaknesses of the church that you serve. Um, you know the things we kind of are really gifted in and do well, and you know the things we struggle with. And today, we're going to come face to face with one of the things I think we struggle with, uh, something that's hard for us. And I'm just going to tell you, it's really convicting. And so here's your warning, watch out, the word is coming after your toes today, but I hope it's more than that, I hope it comes after your heart, I hope it changes us. And so uh, just as a quick disclaimer in this, there isn't, um, the goal isn't to make us feel bad, that's never the goal, the goal is to build us up to Christ-likeness, to call us to faithfulness, to be able to own uh, what we have been set apart to be and to journey in that together. So that's the plan this morning. That's what we're going to try to do. But I, I got to tell you another kind of funny story as we get going. Um, and this will make more sense as we go through each section this morning. I, we're coming in. I didn't sell this in the first service because I didn't want to take the chance of embarrassing anybody, even though no one noticed what happened. So I'm walking in, and I see my wife coming toward me. Now, I don't think she sees me. Right, So she's right beside of me, which I then say pretty loudly, hey, hottie, because that's what I say to my wife. She just kind of keeps walking because she's here and I'm goofy. She kind of hits me and moves on because she's used to my silliness, right? Coming the other way is another lady who goes, so if on social media... Um, yeah, you see where that's going. And so what hit me in that moment is how perspective will change one's interpretation. Uh, Wes Tucker was standing beside of me when this happened, and Wes smiled because he saw me, heard me say to my wife, hey, hottie, right? And then he laughed when he saw the other lady turn and look at me and go, what is he doing, All right? Perspective will change the way we view an event. One of the things that we're tempted to do is to take things that are familiar, adopt a perspective, and live with a false understanding that skews everything else. Today what we're going to talk about is real familiar. It's pretty simple. And most of us will just nod our head and agree. But I really sincerely think for most of us, our perspective is slightly skewed. And as a result, we see our responsibility 
to make God known as an obligation of mission rather than an act of worship. We see our responsibility for evangelism as something that is missional, not something that is anchored in our accent of thanksgiving. And that creates for us, I think, some stumbling blocks, some excuses that prevents us from worshiping the Lord as he is worthy and as he is due. And I think that's, if you'll, if you'll track with me this morning through Psalm 96, I think we'll see that. Last week we realized that Thanksgiving is a joyful reaction to knowing God. This week we realized that Thanksgiving is making God known. Last week we realized that knowing God leads us into Thanksgiving. This week Thanksgiving leads us to make God known. And that's our big truth. That, that's it. It's, it's simple. It's familiar that Thanksgiving leads us to make God known. So once again, let's read from Psalm 96, beginning in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It, has never, or it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Our big truth, thanksgiving, leads us to make God known. We use these terms at our church, big truth and big ideas. Um, if you have a, a child or a grandchild who's uh, active in our kids' ministry and now in our student ministry, you'll recognize those are terms we use within the family discipleship plan. It's a plan that we try to resource uh, our families with to disciple their children at home. Not just bring them to church, but to really help them have a strategic plan for having spiritual conversations week over week, year over year. And those terms are meaningful. The big truth is the one foundational reality 
that is revealed from Scripture that we're asking our families to talk about that particular week. It is a foundational reality revealed in Scripture. The big ideas that follow in the lesson, there's usually there's only one big truth in each lesson, one big truth each week. The big ideas, though, there are a few of those. And they're not new truths. They don't send us down a different rabbit trail. Instead, they deal with the implications and applications of the big truth. One truth that has many implications. Let me give you an example. If the big truth is there is only one God, we all kind of quickly go, yeah, that's true, there's only one God, and we nod our head. But if we will take time to meditate and to think on the implications of that one truth, we will realize that the implications are vast. It'll change our life. It'll change the way we respond to that truth. So what I want you to recognize is our big truth this morning is pretty simple. And I think when that happens, we're tempted many times because the big truth is familiar to us to just easily accept it without meditation, without examination of the implications. Kind of like, sure, why not? Yeah, that makes sense to me. But with such little thought. I want you to know Jesus rarely, I mean rarely allowed that to happen within his followers. Jesus would again and again rather a person walk away conflicted in his mind than be at peace with unrealized conflict. Think of the times that Jesus said, man, remember the, the person his father died? And Jesus says, hey, let the dead bury the dead. Remember the rich young ruler? Go sell everything that you own. Remember when Jesus said, which, which one was the loving neighbor? Think of all the times Jesus says, you've heard it said. These are all examples of Jesus taking a big truth that they had developed certain perceptions around in nice little neat boxes and taking a sledgehammer to those boxes and introducing ideas and implications that challenged how they thought, how they acted, how they lived their life. This happened again and again in his ministry and so I, 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 think there's, I think there's some wisdom in us recognizing, yeah, that is a common, a familiar truth. That if we are thankful, we will make God known. But the implications. They will convict us. If we will think and meditate this morning on the reality of what we see here from the psalmist. The reality that thanksgiving leads us to make God known, I think it will change us, and I think it will lead us to repentance. So that's what I want us to see. We're going to focus on our big ideas. The first one, thanksgiving leads us to make God known joyfully in worship. In the first two verses, three times we're told to sing, to sing. In verse 9, we're told to worship. In verse 11, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. 
Making God known is an overflow of worship. Before we are told in verse 3 to declare, we praise, offer thanksgiving, and worship in verses 1 and 2. That's really important that we see that. That making God known is an expression of worship first. First. Consider like Andrew. This is a great example. Andrew is the brother of Peter. He sees Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Andrew, John 1, immediately runs to Peter and he says, Hey, we found the Messiah. Listen, in Andrew's mind, he's not sitting there thinking, I'm going to make a convert. He is just excited, filled with joy to have had presence with the Messiah. And I'm going to tell people, it's an overflow. Listen, there isn't thought in Andrew's mind of strategy. None of that is there. He just goes and tells them. It's not, I wonder how Peter will respond to my message. I wonder if I should say it like this. Or No, hey, hey, we found the Messiah. There is joy and worship in the proclamation of who God is. See, making God known is a pure, joyful expression of worship. The joy of our salvation, thanksgiving, leads us to make God known. Making God known is not a chore. It's joy. It's worship. Church, listen. We don't save people. We don't. We don't, we don't convince people. You, you can't change someone's life. We don't save people. We worship God. Piper's famous for a quote, but it's really been paraphrased from generation from generation through the church. That missions is not the goal of the church. Worship is the goal of the church. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And frankly, missions begins with an overflow of worship. Begins with an overflow of worship. Listen, if you're here and you're defeated and you're tired and you see evangelism as a burden, as an obligation, a responsibility, it's because you're trying to save people. You're trying to do a God-sized task and you're not God. Stop trying to save people and start trying to worship God privately and publicly. And the most amazing thing will happen when you begin to worship God privately and publicly. When you begin to speak of the goodness that he has shown you in the world, people will get saved. Not because you saved them, but because the power of the gospel that is revealed through who he is and his activity is what saves people. Some of us have really bought into the idea that to make God known is first an act of strategy and mission. It's not. It's just not. It's not laid out that way in Scripture. We make God known first as an act of worship. It is the understanding of who He is and what He's done in my life that calls me to tell the world. An act of worship. Not a strategy. Not a mission. Not first. First, 
It is an act of thanksgiving and worship. Second, make God known daily. Thanksgiving leads us to make God known daily. The psalmist says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Making God known is a daily expression of worship. Last week we realized that thanksgiving is that eternal accent. It is a worldview. It's not just saying thank you or a random act. It is something that is within the very nature of the spirit of God that indwells the believer. And so it is expressed constantly. Our lives are living sacrifices before God. Romans 12. And so hear me when I say this. When we make God known, first and foremost, it is about you and him, not them. When you make God known, first and foremost, it is about you and him, not them. The God you know, the salvation that you are thankful for, it is not dependent on someone else's response. Ultimately, that is not why we share. We share, but because to acknowledge God and his activity is good. It is the worship that he is due. He is worthy. And so the psalmist says, tell of his salvation. How often do we share the gospel? How often do we make him known? How often do we tell of his salvation? Day to day. By the way, I looked that up in the Hebrew because the truth is I was looking for excuses. If I'm just honest, I'm sitting there going, man, every day, uh, share the gospel every day to make him known every day. Ah, man, I, I'm a long ways away from that. And I was just thinking, oh, that's unrealistic. And, I, that, you know, I mean, that's pretty prescribed. And I'm going, I don't know. Um, yeah, I even looked it up in the Hebrew. You know what I mean? It's just every day. Every day. Tell of his salvation every day. Notice what the psalmist doesn't say in this. This is important. No disclaimer is given to the recipient. In other words, the recipient of the proclamation is in no way going to dictate the gospel I proclaim or how often I proclaim it. The psalmist doesn't say, but make sure you don't offend anyone. The psalmist doesn't say, but make sure you build a really, really strong relationship first. The psalmist doesn't say, make sure you're a professional and you know exactly how to do it just right. The psalmist doesn't say anything at all about strategy. Nothing. Do you know why? Because at first... Mission is not about our strategy to win someone at first. At its primary purpose, we make God known because he is worthy to be made known. Because we are thankful for who he is. Because we worship him. And so in that setting, in that tone, we will make him known in thanksgiving and in worship every day of our lives. Because making him known is first an act of worship before it ever becomes a strategy. 
Psalmist says, no. Just tell of his salvation from day to day. Many of us need to repent in that. We need to turn from our excuses. And we need to recognize we're not giving God the worship he is due. We're not failing at the mission. We're not failing at our duty. We are first failing at worship. Next, make God known boldly. I told you this is hard. It's just going to get harder. (laughs) Make God known boldly. Declare his glory among the nations. It says declare. It's not just saying something. It's declaring it with boldness. Listen to what we say. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. Say to the nations, the Lord reigns. He will judge the world. The psalmist calls the people of God to declare, to proclaim, there is one God. Listen, just be honest for a moment. The nations around Israel at this time, they're not sitting there going, oh yeah, there's only one God. Good point. Okay. Nope. They don't believe that. The psalmist says, go to the nations, go to all the people of the world and declare there is one God and he reigns. He is sovereign. Fear him. And oh, by the way, all those things you pretend are gods, they're fake. They're frauds. They're idols. They're man-made. There is only one God and he will judge. Can I just be honest? That is not a popular message across the world. And in Israel's day, many of those people, if they just walk right up to someone else and begin to proclaim such a message, it's not going to go well. Hear what I'm saying. No strategy, no thought is given to this first. First, it is who is God and is he worthy of our proclamation and our declaration? Go among the nations and proclaim there is one God. And everything that you think is good and that that false God, that false idea, it's not. It's not. It's worthless. I think of Peter and John in this. When they're arrested and threatened in Acts chapter 4, told no longer to speak of the gospel, and Peter responds back and he says, we can't help. But speak of the things we have seen and heard. Translation, I have had an encounter with Jesus and I am thankful. And my thankfulness has driven me to worship and I can't help but speak of who he is. Do with me what you must. I think about a guy like Stephen who stood in front of the Sanhedrin and proclaimed the gospel. And how Israel had rejected the gospel. Had rejected Jesus. Their boldness was thankful worship. Listen, it wasn't strategy. Stephen chose words of worship. Listen, I'm going to assume Stephen's a pretty smart guy. If you listen to him and you read his sermon there, he's a smart dude. Stephen's smart enough to understand the climate. He could have said, you know what, if I'll just back down a little bit. I may get an audience tomorrow, but if I keep talking, this is it. 
No strategy came into play. Instead, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he proclaimed the gospel worthy of who God is as an act of worship before he ever thought as an act of strategy. It's important for us to see the boldness in that. Third, thanksgiving will lead us to make God known impartially. The psalmist says, all the earth, among the nations, all the peoples, families of the peoples, the world, here's the qualifier, with equity. With equity. I want to give you a term, gospel discrimination. Gospel discrimination. Here's the definition. The unjust categorical treatment of people that excuses the believer from making God known. The unjust categorical treatment of people that excuses the believer from making God known. Gospel discrimination robs God of the thanksgiving and worship he is due from every living individual on the planet. See, listen, making God known is not first an act of strategy, it is an act of worship. And if we're not making him known, we're withholding thanksgiving and worship. We do this really in kind of two basic ways. There's first an intentional gospel discrimination in which we purposefully withhold gospel advancement due to some categorical treatment of people. As one of the elders of our church, I want to make sure you understand that is so anti to the gospel that will never be permitted. We will challenge that and fight against that in the life of our church with our dying breaths. The gospel is called to go to all people. It doesn't matter what they look like, sound like, how much money they have, or any other qualifier we want to give. The gospel will go to all people. But truthfully, I think in the church, we kind of acknowledge that pretty quickly, but what gets us is this next category, the unintentional gospel discrimination. Mistakenly withholding gospel advancement due to some and oftentimes well-meant categorical treatment of people. I talked about wrestling through with implications. I want to hold out some examples of that unintentional gospel discrimination that I think is present in my life and in yours. And one of the things I hope you'll do is not just so quickly dismiss, but really to meditate and wrestle with how these things prevent you from seeing every person on the planet do the proclamation of who God is. First, there is relational, those who are relationally unfamiliar We discriminate against those who are relationally unfamiliar. In other words, they're not in my tribe. They're not like me. They're not near me. I want you to think for just a moment as the psalmist goes through and as many times as he talks about the nations and all the people of the world, do you think he knows all the people of the world? No. Do you think he's just going to see them in his natural circle? No. Do you think all of Israel who reads and sings this, they know all the people? The answer is no. 
Going is a part of worship and thanksgiving. We cannot make God known to the world unless we go. If we just try to excuse ourselves with the notion that God has not put them in my circle so they're not my audience, we rob God of thanksgiving and worship he is due. We discriminate against those outside of our tribe. Second, those who are relationally familiar. We can discriminate against those who are in our circle, a part of our tribe. The, the psalmist, listen, doesn't exclude his own. It doesn't, it doesn't just say the people out there. It doesn't just say the heathen. It, it, it's the idea of everyone. And the primary application to tell of his salvation day by day demands making God known as a present act. In other words, we make God known where we are in that moment at that time, every day. And the temptation that falls on us sometimes is we aim for the big thing, which is often the unfamiliar thing, and we neglect the present thing. Listen, men, that is an old, old tale for you and me. How many men have wasted their life striving for whatever they deem the big thing and neglect the significant thing that is present with them day to day? Our younger people, listen, this is a struggle for you. It's a struggle because as you look forward with so much of your life, you look forward to big things. All I want to make sure you understand is the lost person who is sitting next to you in school is just as significant as the lost person who you will go proclaim the gospel to on the other side of the planet. Don't discriminate against either. Third, we can discriminate through our agenda or our strategy. They're not in my ministry. They're not in my plans. See, strategy can lead us to focus, but it can never take us to a place of discrimination. Let me give an example. The kids leader can never say, look, I just share the gospel with kids. That's what's really important. They're the next generation. They're the most receptive. And that's where it's really at. The student leader can't say the same thing about the students. The inner city ministry leader can't just simply say, I only make God known to the poor in the city. That's where lives are really changed. The mission team leader can't just say, I only make God known to the unreached people group that I'm passionate about. That's where it's really at. The mom can't just say, listen, I'm busy because I just make the gospel known to my kids and my family. The church planner can't just say, I make God known to my city. Listen, hear what I'm saying. All these strategies are great, and we need them all. And they have a place they focus us. But the moment we begin to elevate our strategy is somehow more significant, more special, more deliberate than somebody else, we break down the plurality of the church and the unity of the mission that calls us to take the gospel to every person on the planet. And we begin to argue through strategy on which is more important and why. Let me give you another term for it. It's discrimination of the gospel. 
And as a church, we have to have a bigger view than that. Paul said, I am, in, or I am all things to all people. He didn't just say, my people, my preference, my passion. No, Paul said, I'm all things to all people. Fourth, we discriminate through traditions and culture. The New Testament describes a battle to overcome gospel discrimination. If you really study the Old Testament, you study the New Testament, you're going to see that the New Testament, much of those epistles are a battle over discrimination. What does it mean to be in Jesus? What must the Gentiles do? What, must, what traditions must the, the, the Jews give up? See, the problem for us in this is we don't sometimes know the difference between our traditions and the biblical mandates. And the bigger problem is we don't want to give up our preferences and our traditions. And the older I get, I'll be honest, the more I understand that. Because the deeper rooted my traditions and my preferences become. But the result of that is gospel discrimination because we begin to hold up Jesus plus something else. And our focus becomes less about worshiping Jesus and more about how I want to worship Jesus. And so the people that I focus my gospel attention on are the people who will be like me and conform to what I want to conform, make me feel comfortable. Fifth, we discriminate by competency and personality. We discriminate against those we decide will not or cannot accept Jesus. We say things like, they won't understand. We say things like, they don't want to hear. They'll be offended. They're too far gone in their sin. We say things like, they don't like me anyway. They're not going to listen to me. We discriminate because of our perception. To make God known impartially, we have to overcome our gospel discrimination, even that which is in us unintentionally. Sometimes and oftentimes with well-meant motives. That will not happen unless we abide deeply in Jesus, meditating on his word and wrestling with the implications of his truth. Finally, in the last point as the team comes up, we, in our thanksgiving, make God known fearfully. The psalmist says he is to be feared. Glory do his name. Tremble before him. The Lord reigns. He will judge. Knowing God leads us into thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving is built on understanding who he is. And that understanding of, thanks, uh, understanding of who he is and thanksgiving will take us to a place of reverence and awe. We will make God known and we will not do it lightly. Because we know he is the one true God. And he is coming. And he is coming to judge. I want to close us by reading Psalm 67. 
But I want to take you back and I want to make sure you get this big truth. Our thanksgiving leads us to make him known. A God that is so big and so loving and so powerful that he sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty for my sin and the sins of the world on the cross, to lay down his life, that through repentance and saving faith, every person in this world could come to know Jesus. Our responsibility as his ambassadors is never first just about an obligation to a mission. It is first about the worship of who he is and what he has done. I want you to hear Psalm 67. I want it to be a prayer of response for us. And then as we stand and as we sing in just a moment, I pray that you would wrestle with repentance. I pray that you would wrestle with a thanksgiving and a worship that is so deep that would lead you to make God known day to day to the people you're around and send you to around the world to people that are far. Psalm 67 verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Stand in awe and reverence of who He is. Would you stand? Would you sing? Would you make this a time of response?